Tonight we're in chapter 2, and uh, we have seven verses, which may encourage you, because last week we had 20 verses, which is why we went late, and all of you parents of children were chewed out when you picked your kids up. Uh, if not by facial expression only, of course. They didn't say anything, but they really meant the pastor has done this to me, not you. But tonight, good news, seven verses, and to the church in Ephesus. And what great timing, since we've been preaching through the letter to the Ephesians, Paul's letter, which predates this letter by about 40 or so years, not quite. Uh, about a generation of folks have come and gone, the parents of the parents, so to speak, the children of the parents, who first read the letter to the Ephesians, are now reading the letter to the church in Ephesus, but this time from John. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And we learned last week, this is Jesus who holds the stars, which, depending on your interpretation, angel or messenger, same word. Some have said it's the proclaimer of God's truth to the church that is the messenger of God to the church, and so bishop or pastor, teacher. But the heart of this is that Jesus holds the church in his right hand, his strong right hand. And he walks among the seven golden lampstands, and we love this because it reminds us that the seven lampstands represent the churches and Jesus walking in the midst of the churches. So he's very much present. In fact, this is the context. Let's begin right here in our exposition. The context, the letter is to the church in the city of Ephesus. At church, I emphasize there, in fact, that's a fill-in-the-blank on your listening guide. There's a church there, and that might be a bit surprising because it's probably not the place where a great many people were eager to go and plant a church. Ephesus was a large and very influential city in Asia Minor in that day and time. There was the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world. It was incredible. The ruins of it still stand today. And, of course, with the Temple of Artemis, or if you're speaking to the Romans, Diana, we have there the fertility cult, which all of that just simply means there's just tons and tons and tons of sexual immorality going on in Ephesus. In other words, uh, this is Las Vegas, of Asia Minor. Now some people would take offense to that, especially my friend who pastors in Las Vegas. But you get the idea. Uh, people went to Ephesus like people go to places like Las Vegas. Tons of ungodliness and immorality. Along with that, of course, there's a strong what's called the imperial cult there because of the Roman influence in this province, which means that this is one of those places where temples were built where people go at least once a year to put a pinch of incense on the altar of Caesar and say, Hail Caesar. Now, these two are non-competing, you understand, because the Romans didn't really care who else you worshipped as long as you worshipped Caesar. So these two are sort of in complementary one to another. They're more than happy for you to go to the temple of Artemis or Diana as long as you make your annual trip by the temple to the Caesar and there uh, praise and give glory to and allegiance to Caesar. Hail Caesar. This is going on, which means now that the Christians who are in Ephesus have all of this pressure on the outside from the sexual immorality, the ungodliness, from the idolatry, and from the imperial cult, which, by the way, if you aren't willing to put that pinch on the altar and say, Hail Caesar, your life's in jeopardy. But there's a lot more they can do to you than take your life. The first thing they do is take your business or your job. They take your relationships. They take your home. You know what they do? They put a, a certificate. You get a certificate 
that says you are in alignment to the imperial cult and therefore anybody can trade and do business with you. But if you aren't willing to say Hail Caesar, you're not going to get much business in the absence of that certificate because nobody wants to deal with you. So that's Ephesus. That's the problem. Paul, by the way, was there for three years, you may remember. And it might surprise us there was, in fact, a church there, a thriving church there. Paul was there those three years. Then Timothy came along. And then, of course, John himself was there. And a lot of people believe went back there after his time of exile here on the Isle of Patmos. But it's a wonderful church in a terrible place. Which, by the way, you know, light just didn't worth much under a bushel. Light's supposed to shine in darkness, so where else would you take a light but into a dark room? Can I just uh, stop and and just encourage us that the lighter, uh, the the darker the night, the lighter, the brighter the light that shines. You can tell I didn't practice that. The darker the night, the brighter the light that shines. Now, here's how we think. There's the natural, and we'll come to this in the second part under the compliment. The, the natural tendency is, is to withdraw from darkness. To withdraw from darkness. This is dark. Well, all this darkness. Like uh, my wife, you know, she was driving in the rain with the kids one time, and they were a little noisy and a little frustrated, and she was a little distracted with what's going on, trying to pay attention. And by the time she got around to addressing the situation, it stopped raining. So what she meant to say is, I'm having enough trouble driving in all of this rain. But as she was saying the statement, she realized it was no longer raining. But at least it was dark, and so she finished the sentence with, you know, it's hard enough to drive in all of this darkness. And the kids still laugh at her today about the darkness. But you know, it's hard to engage and to stay and to want to be intricately involved in a dark place. We just tend to want to run to a brighter place, to a lighter place. We feel more comfortable there. We feel safer there. We feel more secure there. But here's the thing, folks. Light is supposed to shine in darkness. It's the darkness that retreats from light. We understand this. I don't know if it's physics or I don't know what science it is. Somebody will probably tell me. But it's just the nature of light to shine, and it's the nature of darkness to retreat. One candle in a dark room cannot be overcome by the darkness of the room. Instead, the darkness flees. You understand? So there's a church here, and that's the good news. In all of this darkness, there's a church right there. And to that church, Jesus writes a personal letter. Personal. It's personal in the sense that we're reminded that as the Lord of the church, as the head of the body, as the bride, the groom relationship, Jesus is present and aware and in the midst of. That's the reminder in verse 1. The one with the seven stars in his right hand who walks among, in the midst of, between the seven golden lampstands, which we already learned in chapter 1, represent the churches and their influence and their light in darkness. So he's there. Which means this letter is a personal communication. And even more if we borrow from verse 2, when he says this, I know your works. I I know what you've been up to. I've been watching. You see, I'm present and I'm aware. 
Now, the present and the aware is comforting on the one hand because it's just good to know that because we're his body and we're his church and we're his bride, he is with us. That's his promise. Never to leave us, neither forsake us. So we know he's with us, which means we have his comfort, the comfort of his presence. We have his power, the power of his presence. We have his encouragement. We have the ability. We have him. That's good. That's encouraging. That's wonderful. But when he says, I know your works, that might be a bit uncomfortable. Because we all tend to shy away just a little bit from accountability, don't we? When Jesus says to the church, I know your works, immediately the church says, uh, which work are we referring to? Because there's a lot of works going on around here. Which one are you talking about? Tell me more. And he will. I don't mind getting caught doing the right thing or a good thing. Nope. I like pop quizzes when I know the answers to the test. I never mind seeing a police car when I'm stopped at a stop sign. It doesn't scare me a bit when I'm driving 55 in a 55 mile an hour speed zone. When the police car pulls up behind me and then passes me, my heart doesn't start beating faster. My palms don't get sweaty. I don't go, oh, no, he got me because I'm within the law. If anything, I want him to look over there at me and give me a thumbs up. <laughs> got my seatbelt on, right? Driving the speed limit. Got my turn signals. Got caught doing a good thing. But when you rolled through that stop sign... And the first thing you did was look around to see if anybody knows your works. When you're going a little too fast and you get that flash of blue light in your rearview mirror, do you know that just that flash and you just immediately just lock onto your rearview mirror and take your foot off the accelerator? Just in case it's you. Because it could be you. Because you're going 65 in the 55 mile an hour zone. Or worse, you're going 65 on Luetta. And I know you have because I've seen some of you. <laughs> it's 40. And when you see that light, see, suddenly you just have that sense of caughtness. Like, oh no. And Jesus says to the church, his church, his body, I'm paying attention here. I'm present. I'm aware. And I know your works. It's a personal letter. Hey, let's come back to this thought before we're done. And let's ask ourselves before we go, what Jesus would write and what Jesus would say if Jesus wrote and said to us, Hey, I know. I know your works. Number two, the good news is there were some good things about this church to know. I know your works, verse 2 says, and then he gives them a compliment. It's just the form of these letters. There's the encouragement, the commendation, the compliment before the complaint. The compliment is this in verse 2, I know your works. And literally, in the case of Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, it's work. I mean, they are a working church. Your toil and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not 
and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I know your works. I know how hard you're working. I know all the work you're doing and the difference that you're making. I know. That's good news. Because sometimes, you know, when we do the right thing, we wonder if anybody knows we've been doing the right thing. I mean, we didn't get a trophy for that. We didn't get a certificate or a plaque. Nobody called us up on stage and clapped for us. We didn't get a raise for that. We didn't get a bonus for that. And we're wondering if doing that's worth it because nobody seems to notice or care. Here's the good news. You have never done a single good thing in your life that the Lord hasn't taken note of. I'm telling you right now, you, you don't have to blow the trumpet every time you do something good. You don't have to tell everybody every time you've done You don't have to tell anybody when you've done anything good. God knows. God knows. I'm, I'm really glad about that. It, it means that our, our labor in the Lord, is, as the Bible tells us, is not in vain. It's not empty. It's not meaningless. Because God is aware of the good that you do. When you extend a hand to help somebody, when you do something kind for someone, when you express or show love to someone, when you show patience to someone, when you forgive someone, anything you do that's good, God knows. Even if nobody else does. And don't you just wish that would be reward enough for us to just keep doing good? God knows. He knows when you've hurt, when you've been hurt. He knows when you've given and others have taken. He knows when you did your best and the other person just didn't seem to appreciate it in the least. And we start thinking, Dean, well, it wasn't even worth it. Next comment in your mind ought to be, good thing the Lord knows. Good thing the Lord keeps good notes and records. Good thing the Lord is my rewarder and the rewarder of my good deeds. You don't have to worry about being unnoticed. God knows. And who knew they had worked so hard? That word toil, oh my goodness, that, that the toil means to work to exhaustion. The church at Ephesus was not a lazy church. It was not a country club kind of church. It wasn't a show up, check a box, and go home kind of place. Those people, they were committed. They were serious. They were dedicated to doing church, and being the church. And by the way, I, I need us to understand, this is not an underhanded compliment or setup for criticism. You know, I, made a, I learned one time in, in, in karate, Jonathan and I, we were doing karate. I know you can't believe it, but I did. And, uh, and, and I learned that the rule in teaching martial arts in this particular system was is you have to say like five good things to say anything of any criticism, right? Well, that ruined it because as soon as the first good thing came out of the guy's mouth, you knew you were being set up and you could just start counting down. Here it comes. Yeah, good effort. You know, good form, your uniform's clean, way to go. I know you're trying hard. And uh, hey, sure, I'm glad you're here tonight, but you stink. <laughs> yeah, that's just, this is not that. This is genuine and sincere encouragement to the church. So what we learn from the church at Ephesus of these first verses 2 and 3 are sincere compliments that we should receive as the church to be encouraged by. And certainly a church that's busy about the business of ministry is a good church. And in this case, they're not only willing to stand up and go to work. That's what they did. They stood up. You might write those down. They, they stood up 
And they were not afraid of a fight. So they stood against. Listen to it again. How you cannot bear with those who are evil. You just don't put up with it. You're just not going to carry that for long. Just don't put up with that. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And found them to be false. The church at Ephesus was seriously legitimate when it comes to orthodoxy, doctrine, theology, and integrity. So much so that in the course of their labors, their toil, they were willing to go to war against false teachers and the lies that they spread. And there were many. And we already know for decades now the church has been susceptible to false teaching. As the church is trying to work through its theology, still in the early stages of the early church, they're trying to get their minds around things like, well, the incarnation, for example, the trinity. How was God in flesh with us? It's still God. I mean, they're still figuring this out. And some people pressed it way too far and went way out of bounds and came back around with some really messed up false doctrine and teaching of corrupt theology. Some of them came out of Judaism through Christianity and back into Judaism and tried to take others with them back into the law, back into legalism. There are all sorts of influences. There's Gnosticism, there's legalism, there's Judaizers who come in to return people to the bondage of a law that doesn't give life. And the church at Ephesus had that all the time, people coming in. It's like traveling preachers one after another. Hey, can I talk to your people tonight? Hey, can I have a little bit of your time tonight? I've got this great new thinking. I've come up with this excellent new book. I want to share this great idea with you. Trendy, tricky, cool. But the church at Ephesus wasn't having none of it. The church at Ephesus said, uh, come here and tell me a little bit about what you're thinking. And as soon as they heard that line of truth veering off into a half-truth or untruth or a flat-out lie, they said, enough, you're done. And they were jealous for their people, for the flock. They were protective They weren't complacent. They were willing to stand up against any false teaching that came their way and to call it like it is. That's a good thing. And in fact, Ephesus is known for its theological integrity and doctrinal purity. That's a good thing. You've heard it said, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. One of the real problems we have in the contemporary modern day church is the absence or the lack of discipleship. Can I get real with you on a Wednesday night? we got a ton of students over here in the student building right now. And everybody, it's in, the, it's in Baptist Press today, if you just want to know how current this topic is. We are continuing to complain, complain, and complain about these generations of students that come up through our ministries and out of our churches and get lost and gone. and They're done. Boom. See you. Bye. Ah, oh, my goodness. And why are we surprised? Because we've spent all of our time and attention drawing a crowd with a pizza and a kickball or volleyball. we got volleyball here. And not discipling these kids. Not teaching them the Word of God. That's what I love about the ministry of Champion Force Baptist. You know why there are hundreds, not just dozens, not just a few, hundreds of pastors and missionaries and worship leaders and youth ministers And ministry of education, I mean, just about everything you can think of in the area of ministry, there are students who came right up out of this ministry and launched out to serve and to go and to do. Because it wasn't about the pizza, although we can eat our share. This church has had a consistent commitment to teaching the Word of God and discipling the next generation. 
We're not perfect. No, we're not. You clap for the Lord. I don't mind that. Uh, But I can tell you this. Ephesus was committed to discipleship, to doctrinal integrity and theological purity. They were going to get it right. You may not like it, but it wasn't going to change it. Do you understand? It may not be the latest, greatest fad. It might not be the coolest new thing. It may not have the greatest personality up there promoting it. Good gracious, have we become worshipers of personalities these days or what? You know, just about anybody with a thousand, a million Twitter followers can say anything they want and change the world. Test the fruit, man. Take a closer look, will you? Well, so-and-so said it. So? What does the Bible say? What does the Word of God say? Test it. I can tell you this. Anybody comes, this happens to me on a regular basis. Pastor, I have a word for you. I say, hold on a minute. Which page? (laughs) Right? They say, I have a word. God's given me a word for you. I hear that a lot. People, you know, God gave me a word for you. Great. Just know that if it doesn't line up with what God's word has already been to me, I'm going to call you out. Because you're a false prophet. By the way, the Bible is not kind to false prophets. It's a bit uncomfortable. This is a compliment. Theological integrity, doctrinal purity. They stood out, of course. They stood out. Because they didn't just go along to get along. They didn't just fold in and blend in so as not to stick out. They stood out. They understood the cost. They understood the price. It just comes with the territory. When you stand up, people will see. You will attract some attention, and it may not all be good attention. We expect everybody to clap for us when we stand up. But some people aren't going to clap for us. They're going to throw things at us. Or worse, walk over and punch you right in the mouth. The church at Ephesus stood up, and so they stood out. They stood against this flood of immorality that surrounded them. I mean, think of the culture in which they lived. And the influences there, corrupting influences, they stood against that. They stood out because of that. They stood against the temptation to compromise within. Because oftentimes it's not the tide or the flow of evil around us that gets us. It's the rising seed of evil within us that destroys us. They stood against even false teaching within the church. And they stood for Jesus, for his name's sake. Do you see what it says? For his name's sake, verse 3 tells us. So they're getting this right because they understand that they are image bearers. They are his representatives. They're carrying the Jesus banner. So whatever you say, whatever you do, reflects on who he is. So this is a great compliment to the church at Ephesus that though it's been difficult and it's been exhausting, and they've had to stand up under it to bear up underneath it, those words literally mean, to put up with a lot of frustrating opposition because of their stand For godliness, for morality, for integrity, for purity. And yet that's exactly the Lord's compliment to them. He says, I know your works. I got it. I see it. I know it. I know how you feel. Trust me, Jesus says, I know how you feel. They treated me the same way. Consider that a compliment, by the way. Consider it a compliment when they treat us like they treated Jesus. Of course, you know the danger here as we transition is that if we ever become so much like the world that the world doesn't need us, what good are we? What good are we? If we become so much like the world that the world looks right past us because we look so much like the world. 
So there's a compliment, and we should aspire to theological integrity and to doctrinal purity. We should walk a straight road. We should know what we believe and believe what we believe with all of our heart and with all of our convictions, and we should resist the temptation to compromise truth. But in the context of the compliment, we find the complaint, as we will in each of these letters. Notice in verse 4, but I have this against you. So I know your works, and there are some good works, but this I have against you. And that is exactly what you do not want to hear the Lord Jesus Christ say to you. I have this against you. I don't ever want the Lord to be against me. But I have to acknowledge that if there's something in me or about me that is taking me in a way that's inconsistent with or contrary to the nature of Christ, then he is against me. He didn't change. I did. I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Some translations say, lost your first love. Abandoned. It means a cessation of, to stop doing, like to walk away from. You've just walked away from. You've lost it. You've left it. It's gone. What happened to it? Jesus says. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. So some people would read this as first love, meaning Jesus and Jesus only. Others would say the kind of love that you had when you first loved. You know what I'm talking about, right, uh, men? Hmm? Remember? Puppy love? Remember honeymoon love? Newlywed love? Remember? You lost that, Jesus says. You've left that behind. You've just completely walked off and left that somewhere in your past. You have stopped loving like you loved back then. I'm only saying that to the men because only men, right? This is not about women. This is only about men. You, you understand though, don't you? I mean, I, understand. I remember dating Beverly, who by the way is in Orlando right now. If you're wondering if she's not here because I'm talking about her. No, she's visiting her parents after her dad's surgery. But I remember... I hope she's not listening. If you are, darling, I'm so glad you're listening. I, I'm going to confess something to you. I, I, I probably shouldn't, but I'm going to be transparent, and I hope you love me anyway. Beverly and I used to talk on the phone every single night for hours. Seriously, two, three hours. Didn't we, Jeff? Every night. I lived in Gainesville. She lived in Winter Garden outside of Orlando. We were 100 miles apart. On that phone every night, two, three hours. I wasn't watching my watch. I wasn't trying to think of stuff to say. I wasn't going, okay, you know. But here's the thing. It's just crazy how over time you sort of start getting more comfortable and a little bit complacent, maybe you sort of neglect. To the degree that she says to me just a few years ago, she says, Honey, I want to show you something. She opened up her phone and she showed me her conversation with me on text. And it'd be her saying to me, it'd be a long paragraph, right? And then right under that it would say, K. <laughs> just the letter, K. That was before the thumbs up emoji. <laughs> and you know what she, she would say? I remember 
when we used to have long conversations about anything and everything. And here I am trying to communicate with you the love of my life, and all I get back is K or a question mark. Well, that's shorthand. And it doesn't reflect my love for her except that it sure does. <laughs> so, pause. Let me tell you how I solved that problem for a little while. I programmed my phone with auto replies. So all I had to do was press K and it would say, yes, my dear. If I press question mark, it would say, please tell me more, honey. So that was working great because I was showing like interest and, and love and giving her my time and attention. She didn't know I was just hitting K, question mark. So, well, when I had to stop doing that is one time when Randy Barnett sent me a question. You understand. It happened. Too transparent for you, right? Do not ask Randy what the question was or what my programmed auto response that was supposed to go to my wife response was. And don't worry, it wasn't probably what some of you are thinking, but it was definitely not what I would want to say to Randy Barnett. Love the guy, but not that much. Abandoning the love is really not walking away from a feeling like the song, She's Lost That Loving Feeling. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's not. It's more than that. Because in this very context, he talks about love doing. Right? So in reality, if you think back to, to that newlywed or early dating or, or honeymoon kind of love, it, it, it probably had something to do with the fact that we were talking on the phone instead of texting. It probably, you know, what, you know when you know you might have a problem with communication is when you start texting each other from the kitchen to the living room. You may have a problem. You know, when you used to go out to a nice restaurant, it wasn't expensive, but it was nice to get out. And you'd sit there across the table from each other and actually have adult conversations with each other. Remember that? Remember when you did that? Huh? Last week, Hank? The other day? Now, now we don't go out to dinner and have conversation. We sit in front of the TV and have microwave meals. So the, there's the sense in which we don't have this, the feeling of love that's been left behind or lost because we've stopped doing the things that you do when you feel that way and in order to feel that way. It's, it's a both and. And that's what's happened here in the church of Ephesus. They've stopped doing love. They've walked off and away. And so their hearts have grown cold. Imagine a campfire. Everybody's been around a campfire. You have some wood there, some fuel for the fire. And, and what do you have to do through the night? Poke it. You have to stir it. You have to put fuel on it, more wood on it. You have to protect it to keep it burning brightly. If you neglect it, it'll go out. If you walk away from it, it won't burn brightly. It'll go dim. And then it'll go cold. Imagine your relationship to spouse or a family member or friend it's just the fruit of the quality the intimacy of the 
of the relationship is the fruit of what you put into that relationship. Everybody knows that. We all know that. Why is it any different with our relationship to Christ? That if we neglect our relationship to Christ, our hearts are going to grow cold. Surely as we walk away from the campfire into the shadows, we're going to chill off and, and get cold. We want to come back to the fire to get around the heat and keep that fire burning brightly. Tend to it, take care of it, protect it, nurture it, feed it, fuel it, whatever we have to do. Stir it. And the Lord says, I know your works and more than that, I know your heart. Because if you're just looking at somebody's activities and their works, Ephesians pass with flying colors. But the Lord looks on the heart. He doesn't just see what we believe with our head or what we do with our hands. He's looking for how we are in our hearts. He's looking for that love and devotion that's supposed to be the main motivation for everything, everything that we do. And he looks at the church of Ephesus and he says, hey, great job on the labor. Where's the love? Great job on the toil and the effort. But you know, it's a little bit scary that you can be straight as an arrow when it comes to truth and still miss the mark when it comes to love. That is deeply troubling. To be so right, but all wrong. Motives do matter, yes? They do. Motives matter. Because Jesus wants more than our head and our hands. He wants our heart. Let me read for you from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know it. You had it at your wedding. Remember? Well, it works in church too. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, glory me. But have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the prophetic powers, watch me. Understand all mysteries. Listen to me in all knowledge. If I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. I'm nothing. Motives matter. And you can be as religious, as ritualistic, rule-keeping, routine-following, dedicated, hard-working, work your head off. Mary had a little lamb that might have been a sheep except to join the Baptist church and died for lack of sleep. <laughs> you can work your fingers to the bone, and what do you get? Bony fingers. Labor without love is loss. Labor without love is loss. As we've said from the book of Ephesians, right? So a couple of generations ago, when Paul wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus called Ephesians, he commended their faith and their love. But something's been lost in a couple of generations over a few decades. Something's been left behind. They got the doctrine right. They've got the theology straight. But somewhere in here they've forgotten what's supposed to be under it all, through it all, and over all is just love. And why would that surprise us? But the one thing the Bible tells us God is that we can be sure of is this. God is love. He demonstrated his love, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that kind of love. And then he's commanded love. The lawyer said to Jesus, what's most important? What really matters? Help me not to get off track here. You know, a, a rule follower and a box checker said to Jesus, in all of this, pick one. And Jesus said, none of that matters if you miss this. 
Love God with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer said, okay, so which neighbor would we be talking about? And you know how that story of the Good Samaritan unfolds? Anyone and everyone is a neighbor if I can be a neighbor to them. Which means, no exceptions, love them all. Love your family, love your friends, love your next door neighbors, love your enemies, even love those who persecute you. Why? Because God is love and love is the best expression of who God is in our life. It's not how hard we work and all that we do. It's not how tired we are at the end of the day. It's how much we've loved throughout the day. And so the correction in verse 5, remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, because it's a fall. When you fail to love, it's a fall, right? Repent, because failure to love is sin. This is a commandment to not obey is sin. This is a sin of omission. You say, well, I didn't say anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. If you fail to love fully, it's sin. So we repent when we lose or lack love. Love for God and or love for each other. Repent, that means to make up your mind, to change your mind, and to turn around and change of direction as a result. And do the works you did at first. So get it. He doesn't say feel the love you felt at first. He says, do the works you did at first. Because as the little train, we know, right? The engine is fact, truth. The coal car is faith. And the caboose is feeling. You cannot pull a train with feelings. It's driven with facts, truth. Faith sustains that. It's true, and I believe it. Whether I feel it or not. But don't get me wrong. Sometimes ladies correct me on this. I've had plenty of ladies come up and chastise me for saying that honeymoon love, first love doesn't last. Because it's emotional and emotions come and go, rise and fall. I've had many ladies come up to me and rightly so tell me afterwards, Pastor David, the honeymoon's not supposed to end when you get home. Mm -hmm. I mean, who wants to give up that wonderful, joyous feeling of being in love? Over time, we're not supposed to give up on that. We're not supposed to walk off from that. We're not supposed to surrender that. We're still supposed to feel that same joy. In fact, more deeply than ever before. Over time, love is built and deepened and developed. And sure, the emotions and the feeling rise and fall. But you know what? Typically, the emotions of love tend to rise and fall as a result of actions of love. Actions of love drive feelings of love. So do love, Jesus says to the church. Do what you did when you felt what you felt when you felt that first love feeling. Start doing what love does. It's important, he says. It's vital, it's critical, it's essential, it's non-negotiable. Do love like you did it first. So guys, if you want to get back to your honeymoon feeling, then take your wife on a honeymoon. Wives, can I get an amen? Yeah, go go. It's cruise time, man. Take her to dinner. Send her flowers. Write her a note. Get out of the recliner. <laughs> Cook her dinner. I'm just messing with guys because I am one. Ladies, y'all just do, you know, 
Y'all do what you need to do that you did back then. And you never know what your husband might start to do in response. Somebody's got to go first is all I'm saying. <laughs> to do what love does. Now listen. If not, Jesus says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's how serious this is. And don't worry, this is not about eternal security or losing your salvation. Lampstand is light. Lampstand is influence. Jesus says without love, you got no light. That's why he said by this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have hard work to show for it. By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you work yourself to the grave. If you don't have any time to reflect, no time to pray, and no time to spend in the presence of God loving Jesus. He doesn't say that. He says this, by, all, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love. It's the test. It's the quality. It's the light of our life. And so without love, no light. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's doctrinal purity and theological integrity. Then he says in verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen, listen, because not everybody's going to hear this. Not everybody's going to hear this. Not everyone's going to receive this. But to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So I'm going to let you wrestle with this as we close. That love is so serious that not only does it fuel the light, it is the life. Now, we're not saying here, John's not saying here that, look, if you don't get this love thing right, you're not going to heaven. As much as he's saying, if you're going to heaven, you better get this love thing right. You see the difference? You know, it's, it's not like a, a test that you have to score an 80 on to, to pass. You've passed by virtue of the one who has overcome, who has conquered. In Christ, you're there. I think what John is saying here is, is listen carefully, because if you're that guy, if you're that lady, you'll love. You know how I know I think that's essentially what John is saying to us here? Because I've read other things John's written. And he said things like this, if you say you love God, but you don't love others, you're lying. And the love of God is not in you. John said that. I didn't make that up. John the apostle said, get real. If you don't get this love thing, you don't have this life thing. But if you have life, and that life is the light of the world, then the love of God is in you. And flows through you to the world all around you. So even when you don't want to, and they don't deserve to have your love, you love because God is love. So, how serious is love? It's about light and life. <laughs> it's important. So, what does love look like in your life? And if Jesus were to write, as we said we should ask this letter to us, and if he were to say to us, hey, I've been watching. You know I'm with you, right? Yes, sir, Lord. But I was kind of thinking maybe you stayed behind when. <laughs> you know, I was thinking maybe we had like a break from each other because you know every relationship needs to breathe. So I was sort of hoping you weren't paying attention when. 
But if Jesus wrote us a letter and said, I'm with you and I've been watching and I've noticed a few things, and if Jesus gave us a wonderful list of things that were truly true of us, that he could commend in and about us, that would encourage us. But let's not just be encouraged, let's be challenged. If Jesus were to say, I have this against you, what would this be and would it have anything to do with love or the lack thereof? And if we were to remember that sense of passion and devotion and love for Christ and the fluid fruit of that of love for others, we would remember that how would we get back to that? What would we need to do to recover that, to recapture that? What would that look like for us? I don't know how many of you used to read your Bible more than you do now. and How many of you list, used to listen to maybe Christian music and, and, and be uplifted and encouraged more than you do now? I don't know how many of you used to pray more than you do now. I don't know how many of you used to share your faith more than you do now. How many of us used to give generously more than we do now? I, I don't know how many of us used to say amen more than we do now. Used to take more notes than we do now. Oh, I'm getting too personal, sorry. I'm just saying, if, if you could remember and go back to a time and a place when Jesus might have said to you, man, you are red hot. Well, your heart is liquid before me. You are full of love and light and life. If we could go back to that and return to that and recapture that and do now what we did then that resulted in that sense of feeling, of love, of joy, of passion. I promise you, Jesus is not okay when any of us are cooled off. So he just challenged us all. I'm sure if he wrote a letter tonight, he'd say, look, here's the thing. At the heart of all of this is a love issue. You need more of it. We need to do more of it. So get back around that fire and stoke it and tend to it and refuel it and recapture the warmth and the heat and the passion of it. This is a call to revivals, what this is for all of us. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that the truth of God's word is both encouraging and uplifting to you. If you'd like more information about our church, service times, or locations, or if you have a question about what you heard today and you want to connect with someone, I want to encourage you to visit us on our website at championforest.org. Have a great day and God bless.